Turn in Holy Scripture this morning to the Gospel according to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we'll, we'll read the first 27 verses. First 27 verses. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that thou saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speaketh unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talketh with, this, with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? We read that far in God's holy word. We consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 35 on the second commandment. We'll read the second commandment again to have it clearly before us, and because of its length, Quite a bit different than the first commandment. The second commandment is, Thou shalt not make unto thee 
any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Lord's Day 35 is this, What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. Our images, then, not at all to be made. God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught, not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is quite easy for us to have mistaken and wrong views about ourselves in relationship to the law of God. It is easy for us to imagine that we worship God by, strictly speaking, the keeping of His commandments themselves. In other words, worship is simply a matter of keeping certain requirements that God sets before us, which wrong view often and quickly often leads to the notion that we ourselves have been and are keeping the law of God at all times. The result being that we can easily look at the second commandment and ourselves and our worship in the light of the second commandment and think to ourselves, well, I have no idols in my house. I have no idols in my home. We have no idols here in our worship. Therefore, we have kept this law of God, if not entirely, then for the most part. And if that is your notion, you are sadly, sadly mistaken. Another is that since we are saved by grace in Jesus Christ who has fulfilled all of the law, therefore the law is abrogated in such a way that we may now worship God however we please or whatever we determine is best and the right way to serve God. That notion is equally wrong. Against both of those notions and giving get considerable and significant instruction on that matter is the encounter of Jesus that we read with the Samaritan woman about the well of Jacob in John chapter 4. The inclusion of that event in the gospel according to John is significant in its own right. That's evident from its very inclusion in the book of John itself. I mention that because we recently preached through the period of Lent and considered the death of Jesus Christ and then also his resurrection, especially from what John writes and that what he writes he wrote so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Then in that book of only 21 chapters, over half the book deals with only the last two weeks of Jesus' life, leaving the first half of the book to cover the rest of his life. So when John takes an entire chapter almost to bring to our attention this event and one that is recorded only here, we should sit up and take notice. If you look at the book of John, 
and especially those events leading up to the last few weeks of his life, you will notice there are a number of significant encounters of Jesus with individuals that are recorded. And they come in two flavors. Either those that show that Jesus clearly is the Son of God, but then is rejected in blatant unbelief, or encounters in which he saves those whom one would not expect he would save, and saves them in a way that shows clearly he is the Son of God. So, for example, in John chapter 3, you have the encounter of Jesus with the Pharisee of all people, Nicodemus, which the book goes on to make clear is saved by Jesus and through that encounter. There are others. There are the salvation of Jesus, for example, of the a son of the nobleman of Capernaum. And there is the healing of the man by the pool of Bethesda who has no one to help him. There is the record of Jesus' encounter with the woman taken in adultery whom Jesus also saves. And then there is this one that we read this morning of Jesus with this woman at the well of Samaria. That encounter is significant for a couple of reasons. First, they show the nature of the salvation that is coming through faith in Jesus Christ, that no longer will salvation be limited to the Jews and the Jewish people, but salvation being salvation through faith will be extended into all the world, to the Gentiles also, and this woman is an example of that. And therefore, too, that must be considered when we consider what Jesus means about the fact that there would be worship coming of him or God in spirit and in truth. The second thing in this encounter of Jesus with this woman that is clearly at the forefront is instruction of Jesus as to the saved and their relationship to the law. In other words, it has to do with the nature of the salvation brought by the Messiah. That's evident when there are two issues pertaining to the law brought up in this encounter. The first pertains the seventh commandment. This woman is living in adultery. She is an adulteress by the fact that she has divorced her husband and remarried a number of times, so that as Jesus points out, her marriage is no marriage. The husband that she has is no husband, and she is therefore in violation of the seventh commandment, instructive all by itself. The second pertains to the second commandment. There is a relationship to the first commandment in that Jesus points out that the Samaritans don't know who they worship or what they worship, but in the main, it's about the second commandment. It gives Jesus' definitive interpretation of the second commandment. And it shows significantly, first, that even though Jesus is coming and he has come, and he is the Messiah, the Messiah who redeems us from our sins, and redeems us such that adulterers and idolaters, because the Samaritans, as Jesus points out, were idolaters by their false worship, he comes to save such adulterers and idolaters. But also his salvation comes in such a way that the law is not abrogated, but it becomes the rule now for their thankful lives. It is a salvation that converts and changes so that one puts away their adultery and one puts away their idolatry. And this is what Jesus is teaching when he says that God should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Consider with me then 
the instruction of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 35, under that theme, worship in spirit and in truth. We notice the reality, the reason, and the blessedness, or the requirement, the reason, and the blessedness. The second commandment has been interpreted rightly by the Heidelberg Catechism that we have read in terms of what we call the regulative principle. That is significant all by itself because it means and it shows that the Reformed faith considers that its worship according to the regulative principle is in fact the carrying out of the commandment and requirement of Jesus Christ that we worship him in spirit and in truth. And at the outset we must see that when Jesus says that there is a time coming, which time is now in our day in the New Testament, the worship of God in spirit and in truth, it is not opposed to or antithetical to the regulative principle of worship, which is that we worship God only as He has revealed in His Word. That's the interpretation of the second commandment, the abiding second commandment given by the Reformed faith in Lord's Day 35. What does God require? What's the requirement in the second commandment? The Heidelberg Catechism says basically that we worship God in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. In other words, when we worship Him some way that He has not commanded, when we worship Him in some way according to our own imagination or our own whim and our own will, we are violating the second commandment. I say this interpretation of the second commandment is not antithetical to that of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I mention that because sometimes that is how it is viewed. It is often interpreted, the words of Jesus, that we worship him in spirit and truth, meaning that we may worship him how we see fit, how we think we ought to worship him. And that's not what Jesus meant at all, and that is not the way the Heidelberg Catechism interprets the meaning of the words of Jesus. That makes that is made clear when later on what God has commanded in His Word, the Catechism delineates and lays out as not worshiping God through, by representation of Him through means, that He may not be represented. That is, God must be worshiped in spirit, not in things, not represented by things. And then goes on in the last question and answer to say that we worship God, namely even that we are taught by God through the lively preaching of the Word. And you may see there that the lively preaching of the Word is an expression of what Jesus meant by worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. So that at the outset, we may rightly interpret what Jesus said, that we worship him and must worship him in spirit and in truth, as meaning this, that we worship God strictly and only by the Spirit and according to the truth of God in Jesus Christ. We may even shorten what Jesus said as to meaning, which is that we may worship God only in and through Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, by our heart through faith in Jesus Christ. And the truth there is the truth, namely the revelation of God, as it is found in Jesus Christ. That's simply what Jesus means. Jesus is not, or God is not to be worshipped 
through material things. He may not be represented by material things. We may not make material things so as to worship God by them. But also, and we understand the former quite easily, also we may not form spiritual images. We may not form ideas and notions about God that are opposed to or against or contrary to the truth of God, especially as it's revealed in the Word. That is, the Word that is Jesus Christ and the Word that is the infallible Scriptures. And you have to see that that is why our fathers rightly interpret that as what we call the regulative principle. So that generally, generally to worship God rightly according to His Word means that you worship Him in your heart according to and by the Spirit of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. That truth of God and one could rightly say that that is the entire truth of the second commandment. That points out something very, very important that I want to impress upon you and that must be impressed upon you about salvation in Jesus Christ. We mentioned this earlier with regard to the law itself in our relationship to the law of God. Jesus must not be misunderstood here. And what he's teaching must be understood rightly. Jesus, when he talks about worship of God in spirit and truth to this woman, is talking about something that's coming in the future but not in such a way as he's denying that worship of God in the Old Testament was not by spirit and in truth. We must understand that. Jesus was not saying that now that he has come, that the Christ has come, will suffer and die, that an entirely new way of worshiping God will be instituted. He is not saying that in the Old Testament, the true worship of God was in another way than by spirit and in truth. We must understand that. In the Old Testament, too, the saints, the saints like Abraham and David and all the true worshipers of God gathered in Jerusalem, even those who worshiped God through the ceremonies instituted in the law of Moses, worshipped God in spirit and in truth. But with the coming of the Messiah, with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, there would be a significant change such that he does call it something that is coming in the future. What's changed is that Worship of God in spirit and in truth will now be through that truth as it is much more clearly revealed and then known by the pouring out of the risen spirit of Jesus Christ after he comes. In the Old Testament, worship of God in spirit and in truth could only be done through the representation the symbols through the ceremonies that pictured Jesus Christ. They saw God and they worshipped God through the Christ, through the Messiah. And they all understood that. Even this woman who was a Samaritan understood that. Even she, who Jesus says was not, did not even know who she worshipped, and who violated the second commandment because they worshiped God in Samaria and not in Jerusalem, had an understanding of the Messiah and that he would bring new instruction. He would show them new things, give them new and better understanding. So there was a certain obscurity 
in the worship of God in spirit and in truth. But please do not misunderstand Jesus. What we have is that when we look at God and we worship God, we still, as they did, worship by faith and through the Messiah. We understand that we only have access to God through Jesus Christ, through Him who is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other access to God than through the bloody sacrifice of Himself. And not only that, but we now see that in Jesus Christ personally who has come. And so clear is that revelation that there is indeed an aspect of the worship of God that is entirely done away with, namely all the ceremonies. And our creeds speak about that. Don't have time this morning to get into that. But one noteworthy aspect of it is so significant was the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ and the importance that that be done only once that God rids, He gets rid of, He wipes out, He displaces any more worship of Him through blood. So the sacrament of circumcision, a bloody bloody sacrament is done away with and replaced by a sacrament where the blood of Christ is represented by water. No more blood is shed. And the sacrament of the Lord's or the sacrament of the Passover, the great shedding of the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb slain observed by every Israelite family is done away with and replaced by the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where the broken body and shed blood of Christ is represented by bread and by wine. That's the kind of transition that Jesus is talking about with this woman. That such would be the spiritual nature of this worship, according to the truth of the crucified and risen Savior, that all of the Old Testament ceremonies will be done away with. Jesus is also referring to the fact that there would be an extension of this worship of God in spirit and in truth. No longer would it be limited to Jerusalem. He makes clear to this woman that the Samaritans were guilty of violating the second commandment by insisting that they could worship God in Samaria just as well as the Jews worshipped God in Jerusalem. Jesus divorces the woman of that notion when he says that by that worship in a wrong location, contrary to the word of God, was so egregious that they didn't even know who they worshipped. They didn't even know what they worshipped. It was as if they worshipped an entirely false god. And that's the nature of idolatry. And it shows the seriousness of worshiping God according to His Word. That even in the Old Testament, God required that worship of Him in spirit and in truth be according to His Word. That was always the great mistake of Israel. We must understand that. We all know that Israel time and time again was guilty of idolatry in various forms, often progressive forms. They started out with what we might call minimal forms of idolatry, and it, and it progressed always to the grossest forms of idolatry that you can imagine, including worship or including sacrifice of their own children and the erection of altars and idols within the temple itself. But it always started in the same place, in the same way. And that was the people decided they didn't have to worship God strictly in the place that he decided. You see, the children of Israel all knew that worship isn't simply a matter of the Sabbath day. 
that God required that they worship Him in all of their lives, just like we recognize. We recognize that the second commandment applies very much to our corporate worship. And that's how it's interpreted in Lord's Day 35. What it speaks about is mainly about corporate worship. But it also applies to our life. No one would dare interpret the second commandment this way, that it regulates our life on one day of the week. It regulates how we approach God and how we worship God and how we serve God on Sunday. But the other six days, we can pretty much worship God however we want. In fact, it's not even really required that we worship God. We all know, we have instinctively that knowledge that that's wrong. But the mistake is that we often think to ourselves that what might apply on Sunday doesn't apply the rest of our life. Certainly, we are called to worship God corporately in the temple at Jerusalem, said the Old Testament people. When we can get around to it, when it's not so inconvenient because many had to travel long distances to worship there, and God did not require that they worship in the temple every Sunday. That was not required, but they did have to appear a certain number of times in the year for the great feasts. Nevertheless, Israel often took the excuse that we worship God in all our lives, even at our homes and in our families and farms, to set up other places of worship, high places. And often it started out with places like Bethel. Bethel was a special place in biblical history, even had the name the House of God. There were other special places, and people genuinely went there with good intentions to worship God. But always, exactly because that was a violation of the second commandment, devolved into idolatry. Next thing you know, there were small idols here and there and representations of God here and there. And then you know the rest of the story. Jesus was pointing out the same thing had gone on in his own time, even with the Samaritans. And it goes on in the New Testament too. There is always the notion that the second commandment, and especially now in light of the freedom, the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the notion that the second commandment itself is abrogated in such a way that we can at least determine for ourselves certain matters of worship. Jesus does not mean that when he says, in spirit and in truth. That truth includes the truth of the Word of God, includes the Word of God which tells us exactly how we must worship God. And our fathers called that the regulative principle. And so if you look at our worship, beloved, and ask why it is the way it is, why is it that we have these elements of worship and not others? Why is it that the worship here at Trinity Protestant Reformed Church is different from, say, a number of churches right here in Hudsonville, Michigan? The answer is because we believe we are still bound to the second commandment. It's part of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Having said that, there is also an equal danger for us especially that we imagine that we are worshiping God if we simply follow the letter of the truth. That we search the Scriptures and we find out that these elements of worship ought to be included in our liturgy, that it ought to include a good dose of the preaching of the Word, and notice that in this Lord's Day, how it elevates the preaching of the Word as the primary means of grace as well as the means by which we worship God, something that is mocked and ridiculed even in Reformed churches today so that there is less and less preaching and more and more of everything else. But there nevertheless is the danger that 
we are worshiping God simply because we enter into a building called a church, and we sit in that church, and we follow that liturgy rigorously, and we sit under the preaching, and we check off this box, and we check off that box, and therefore we have followed the rule of the second commandment and the rule of God that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the answer is, that's wrong too. That's not in spirit. That's according to the letter. That's not according to the spirit. That's not by the spirit. That's not true spiritual worship. What exposes that is when one understands, especially, that worship of God in spirit and in truth, according to the truth of Jesus Christ, is that we worship God as sinners, as those who violate the second commandment. Even when we follow the second commandment, even when we rightly say our worship is according to God's word, we have not allowed other elements of false worship to enter into our corporate worship. We must stand before God as we worship, acknowledging how idolatrous we really are. That must be done. That must be done by us. Let us not sit here this morning and say to ourselves, well, how much different we are than those, those ungodly, wicked, unbelieving people in the Old Testament. We are just as tempted by idolatry as they are. And idolatry is still a problem. And it shows itself when even when we follow the second commandment formally, we find if we look rightly in our hearts how often we want to worship God our own way or that we represent God in our own mind according to what we think he ought to be, not as he really is. And what changes that, and what exposes that, and what delivers us from that, is to worship God in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ. Now, I want to move on and consider why this is. This is perfect example, beloved, of showing and teaching that God's commandments and God's rules and God's law have a purpose. God does not make them arbitrarily. They are not things that God makes up according to some whim, but there's always a reason for God's commandments. There's a number of reasons that we could look at this morning. We're not going to be able to do all of that. But consider in the first place that this commandment is based upon who God is. That we must and we may only worship God in spirit and in truth exactly because God is truth and God is spirit. That's what Jesus himself points out. That we worship God, the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for, for this reason, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit. There's Jesus' answer. You cannot worship God by images. You cannot worship God any other way than in spirit and in truth exactly because of who God is. It's impossible to represent God by images. And here too is a reminder that even in our theology how careful we must be and should even enter into the realm of theology. Theology is where we systematize and formalize statements about God, about what we believe God is and who He is, and realize that even that cannot capture the true grandeur and glory of God. They're statements of truth. 
But even then, and it's interesting that in our creeds at crucial points we are reminded about pride in this regard, many things remain mysterious exactly because of who God is. God is spirit. That's one of the first things that we must remember. He is not and cannot be represented by any creaturely, earthly image. And he's truth. The God of truth cannot be worshipped by falsehoods, cannot be worshipped falsely. Maybe you yourself have experienced that. Have you ever tried to hide something from God? When you approach God in prayer, which is a form of worship, or sit in church trying to cover your own sins rather than bearing them before the Lord and admitting them, lying to God, lying about God in prayer or in thought, and you find that it is no worship. You find it goes nowhere. It is, as it were, hits the ceiling and bounces back. And you say, why is that? And it has to do with who God is. He is truth. There's more than that. It has to do also with the nature of our salvation. The nature of our salvation is that it comes to us only through Jesus Christ, and it consists of the imparting of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me put it another way. It has to do with who Christ is and how we worship God through Christ and only Christ. There's something remarkable, mysterious here, too, in that Christ is clearly called the image of God. He is the Word who is God and the Word who is with God. He is the one who is both God and another that is beside God, that is God the Father. What Jesus shows is God the Father. He comes as the image of God. Jesus, and this is something John especially exposes in his gospel, to represent the Father, to do the Father's will, to show the Father, the one by whom we have access to the Father. That is, he is the image of God through whom we worship God. There is an image. The reason there may be no images of God, no other images of God, why God may not be worshipped through any representation, any visible means, is exactly because there is only one image by whom and through whom we know God, worship God, are received by God, understand God. And that representation is the truth. There is no false representation about God in Jesus Christ. What He says, what He does, everything about Him reveals the truth of God. And, this is even more amazing, it's God's accommodation to us. There's something amazing about this. God who is spirit comes to us as creatures whom he has made and demands, worship me in spirit. Which, if you think about it, is an impossibility. How can earthly, physical creatures, even those that have a soul, even those in whom God has breathed the breath of life, truly worship God in spirit and in truth? Now, think about the, imag the impossibility of it as fallen sinners. That... that Anyone that thinks that they can do this in and of themselves is grossly mistaken. And one needs simply to look at Jesus Christ for that. There's the truth. 
Why is this commandment here? And the answer is because God, in His wise and inscrutable plan, would reveal Himself only by one. Revealed Himself through the Word. Revealed Himself only through Jesus Christ. And says, that's the way. That's the only way. That will be the amazing thing forever about God. Such is God. Such so other creaturely is He. So much spirit is He that He must accommodate Himself to us in Jesus Christ. The only real way to know God is through Him. And this you have to understand is why ultimately we turn to idols. We don't recognize that. We don't think that. We imagine to ourselves we're worshiping God through Jesus Christ, but we're worshiping all kinds of idols. And it shows when we don't trust in Jesus Christ, but we trust in all these other things. You understand now why that's such an abomination for God? Idolatry cuts at the heart and soul of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is a huge and great denial of Him, the one true and perfect image of God. Imagine that. God who would be sending into the world His only begotten Son to do what He did. Israel imagined they could represent by a bull made of gold. Something that you couldn't even be saved by, but you had to pick it up and move it around. And that's what we do. That's our sin. We come here and we say, I trust God. I believe in God. I know who God is. When we really don't. We really don't because we're filled with all kinds of fear and anxiety. Don't forget, that's God doing what He does. You look at the history of the Old Testament, one thing becomes apparent. that when Israel fell into idolatry, God forsook them in a real sense. And now God used that to turn, to turn His elect children, to turn His believers who were living in unbelief to Him. And He did it by giving it over, giving them over to that sin. How did He do that? What did He do? Well, God put them in positions where they needed salvation. They needed deliverance. They needed comfort. They needed help. And they learned they couldn't get it anywhere else than through God, through faith in God. You ever find God doing that in your life? Let the idols get out of hand. Your trust is in your cars, in your houses, in your bank account. They're in your job. Maybe, maybe they're even your kids and your, and your spouse. We can turn those into idols. Or your idol is simply yourself. Oh, you deny it. You say, oh no, those are, those are just things I may use legitimately. I, I have a certain freedom here. And without even thinking, without even knowing about it, we formed, we formed an idol about God in our own mind. We're really worshiping ourselves, not God. But we imagine that we are. And what does God do? What does God do? Well, oftentimes He gives you over to that idol. Your trust is in these material things. Fine, I'll give you all kinds of material things. And I'll take them away. We'll see what happens. Or I'll let you see whether this or that can save you. Can a doctor really save you? Can he really deliver you? Can this or that? And God brings us back to him. You see, that's worship of God in spirit and truth. And that points out why this commandment is so long. It's the one commandment where God goes on to talk about what He does and how He deals with idolatry and how serious a sin it is. And what God is pointing out there is the way of obedience to the second commandment is the way of blessedness. And understand that. It itself is blessed. It's why it's part of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Do you think that after Jesus saved this woman at the well of Samaria, she kept living in adultery? And she continued to live in her idolatry? you think so? I don't. 
I know what happened. I know what happened to her. It's the same thing that happens to all of us. God turns us unto Himself, and there we find that the worship of Him in spirit and in truth is blessed in and of itself. That it itself is His salvation. That's what His salvation consists of. He turns us unto Him, and we find Him blessed, and blessed above all other things, so that we want nothing else but Him. And we take everything else and we throw it away. We consider it dung. And when we don't, God will test us. Jesus did that before. There were those who came to him and said, I want to follow you. I want to be your disciple. Jesus said, fine. Sell everything you have. We talked about this when we considered the first commandment. Our idols. And I asked you to consider your life and how God deals with you. Maybe troubles in your life. Maybe situations in your life. And the church. Trials that go on in the church. And it's worth asking the question, is it because of idols? Is it because we're not worshiping God in spirit and truth, but our worship is just a bunch of lies, a bunch of hypocrisy, that what we're really worshiping is all kinds of material things and not God in spirit and truth at all? We ought to consider that, because if that's true, that's God turning us. That's God calling us to repentance. That's God calling us unto himself in Jesus Christ. Calling us to believe on him and him alone. And that's the way of blessedness. It's the only way of blessedness. The way of idolatry is the way of misery. The way of self-reliance is the way of destruction. Because it can't deliver you. You can't deliver you. Only God and Jesus Christ can and will. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, forgive us our idolatry. Forgive us of our trust in our putting our trust in all kinds of everything of this world that is not Thee, that is not worship of Thee in spirit and in truth. And bless, bless us, Bless us by turning us unto Thee in spirit and in truth to find joy and happiness, to find peace and contentment in no one and nothing else than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.